0: This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name?
1: Wayne You look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven here. Robbery, homicides, take it. Give me
0: all you got! This and Give me all you got! I do what I do best takes cause. You do what you do best. i trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me today for the 129th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, Michael Mann's 1995 symphony of damaged masculinity, according to Bobby Roberts, Michael Mann's 1995 incredible opus, is uh, a man who is not a uh, a professional uh, film critic, um, but is an online uh, an online film blogger who reached out as many. Uh, of the people who do as part of this show um, and uh, is familiar with some of our great folk who've been on the show before, Sam McCosh, Tom Clift, Andy Buckle, are all Aussie great critics um, and uh, is a self-confessed, this almost didn't get him a guernsey on the show, a self-professed black hat apologist. Um, he and Bill Abiri share that in common. Um, he's a writer behind um, the blog Public Transportation Snob. His name is Mr. Dan Heaton. Dan, welcome to One Heat Minute.
1: Oh, thank you so much. You know, I I just keep finding myself writing about Black Hat. Like I wrote <laughs> I think 3 like 2000 word articles about it. And I don't even know why. I just keep it's one of those movies. It kind of its flaws kind of inspire me to just keep digging further. That's look and what I would say to you is
0: after I did an you know, as an undergrad uh, uh, sorry, as a postgrad, I did it and what began as like a 130,000-word thesis that ended up getting synthesized into about 80,000-word thesis on the work of Michael Mann. And then since then, I've podcasted, I've, you know, this is all prior to One Heat Minute. I've podcasted about Heat, I've written about Heat, I've watched Heat, I've talked about it to everyone who'll listen to me about what my favorite movie of all time is. And it was only that this... Podcast was my way of finally being able to contend with this piece of art that was inciting inspiration and you know, uh, you know such such passion that I feel like I'm actually able to exercise like every feeling I have about this movie. So I think if that's a great piece of art that it keeps making you go back as a person who's not a massive fan of Black Hat, but um, I, I just like to cheekily tease everyone, usually because people who listen to this podcast are man lovers and Black Hat apologists. And I don't think it's uninteresting. I just don't think it's great. and 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 there's a difference between a Michael Mann movie that's not so great Because it always invariably has amazing, interesting things to say in my mind. And people who are like, no, it's like his best movie. And I just go, stop. Like, there's at least six in front of it. So we can just stop right there.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't want to go that far because I would say it's probably for me it's behind a lot of the greats it's behind ali and the insider and Heat and collateral so i don't want to go out as the guy who it's his favorite one it just intrigues me so much and i feel like it came and went from the theaters and i know it wasn't even in the theaters in a lot of places but here i remember seeing in, it in the theater in Ameri-
0: not in not in australia when it's got an australian superstar as the lead actor like chris hemsworth is australia's most famous personality right now you know maybe yeah. Hugh huge is close But like the pervasiveness of the Avengers, and yeah, Hemsworth's a monster star. Didn't get released in those. Yeah, so I don't, I
1: you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be doing a full on minute by minute (laughs) podcast about Black Hat. But I I will say, I'll be a guest if you ever do it. I'll I'll be a guest. (laughs) I don't think it would get the same attention and level of guest as Heat. But um, but you know, I think it has a lot of cool stuff, and a lot of it connects to a lot of Michael Mann's career. So so it's a lot of fun to. Dig into something that hasn't gotten as much attention, for sure. Great. Well, look,
0: Dan and I, you guys know the drill. You know the discipline. Dan and I are going to check out this the 129th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus. A really gloriously shot moment and a reaction shot. The whole preceding minute that you would have heard, um, a really great episode uh, with Brendan Hodges, um, film critic, um, who's on sabbatical? I demanded in the last episode to be off sabbatical because of his insight. Um, would unpack the preceding tension of this scene. Neil as this caged animal, coming through and sort of trying to uh, uh, trying to flex and gain control of a situation. And Edie, as someone who's been consuming a twenty four hour news cycle and is just completely obliterated with shock that this is the guy that she's fallen for and uh, this is what he's capable of and this is a very iconic scene I'm looking forward to watching it with Dan with uh, right now you guys can listen along and then Dan and I are going to come back and unpack it for you! Beanie.
1: Beanie. I didn't do this to me! Who are you? It's gonna be alright. do it's gonna be alright? Level D slot 18 man, I was I was in gripped by that. That's I've seen it a bunch of times, but the more I because this is one of those scenes, it's not like you know the heist or the you know the big conversation, but it's one of those scenes where you know Neil has been going and going step by step, and he just you know, he just took out Van Zant and he's just he's going through everything and it's like totally different but it brings us so much back into the human side of it because we've been kind of with Neil, like okay next step next step next step and then this completely pulls it out and I love that because it's like it grinds us back down to earth in a way because he's been just like checking off the checklist mm. and then Edie looks at him like you are a crazy person like I want to get away and this scene just in one sense it's beautiful but in another sense, it's kind of horrifying. It's so many different almost genres and everything all within a single minute. Absolutely.
0: I think I think the allusion to what you said is like the grounding of this scene in tandem with the previous minute, like this entire scene over the, the couple of minutes. But the arc of it is so powerful because of, um, you know, just to anchor it to this minute is... She's so reeling from the shock of this moment that her running out the door, it's it's almost like Neil's pushing her for a reaction to, to see if she'll bend slash break. And she breaks and runs, like you know, it's that fight or flight, and it's flight. And as she runs up that that hill with that sort of long, you know, bending grass that's sort of, you know, being kind of licked by the wind and and, and sort of bending like the only things that now it looks like to me it's like it's like a lion that's hunting down like a gazelle and it grabs it and it pins it and it's asking the gazelle to be thankful that it's been caught you know like it's like yeah. it is such layers of perversion it's this and it's also it's not happening at ferocious speed or with quite a great deal of frenzy it's like she's out of there and he goes, Edie, Edie. It's not even yelling after her. And he kind of gets her and then she's like, why did you do this to me? It's such a powerful, you know, strangulation and suffocation of this character. And then she kind of, she doesn't know what to do. She knows that she's ensnared by someone who's way more dangerous than she ever thought. And the the only thing that she can do is just now be still. Once, she's, once he gets her in his clutches, it's like, be still because you know, I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with this animal that I I had no idea that this was this guy.
1: Well, yeah. And we've, we've come so far where a lot of the movie is, you know, being, I wouldn't say totally on Neil's side, but we, in a sense, almost are rooting for him. Even after the heist, we want him to survive. We don't want him to be killed or we don't want him to get caught. And then you have the scene where, you know, in a way, he kind of treats her like he treats a lot of people. He just comes in, you know, and I know it was in the he's previous a total minute. Dick. He's a total yeah. dick. You're allowed to... <laughs> Pack your stuff. Get out. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? It was almost like exactly what he told Charlene earlier and where she, when she was with Hank Azaria. But he does it, and he's not even, like, looking at her. It's just like I said. He's, like, this mental checklist. He's just like, okay, let's go. Come on, come on, come on. Not even thinking that she might not want to be with him. Hmm. And it's crazy, and she runs up the hill, and... How much physical force that he uses to I mean, you look at it and it's like and the camera pulls away in a in a weird way where it's like we're behind these kind of like grass and we don't even totally see what's happening. But you see him just like exerting all this power and you're like, this is not the Neil that I really want to root for. I'm not sure how I really feel about this because he's he's subduing her in a way. Like you said, the gazelle is a perfect example. Like basically he chases her. And there's no doubt he's, she's going to be going back with him in some way, at least at this point.
0: It's either go back with him alive or dead. Like, it's, it's really it's what's, what's sort of scary is that it is in those terms for Neil. Like, that's what it feels like. He gets her, and she starts to struggle, and he's got her. It's over. In the previous minute, if guys, firstly, if this is your first episode of One Heat Minute, sometimes I have to actually think about this, Dan. This is your first episode of One Heat Minute. Welcome. You only have a hundred and twenty-eight episodes to catch up on. <laughs> I'm sorry, you've got less to 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 come than um to, than to catch up on. Um, but I think in the preceding minute, you know, one of the things that I guess is the tone setter for me is, and this is you know Neil's contradictory nature when it comes to his uh, this relationship, and you know this kind of weird self-deception that he's got. Like, does he want to live out this fantasy or does he not? Like, in these moments, I think he wants to lie to himself. He wants to believe the lie that he's creating. Because in the previous minute, you know, she's like, was that you? Like, she's so dumbfounded and shocked from the news, you know, and he says, i tell you what I don't do. I don't sell medals. That's like the thats the opening gamut of that previous minute. And in this minute, when she reacts the way she does, you you see him immediately have to realize that he's got to soften. You know, he runs after her up that hill, and he grabs her and he he subdues her, but he's not violent. He's like, it's okay, it'll be okay. Like, and he's he he then has to go into a more nurturing phase. And she's like, you watch Amy Brenneman's wonderful physical performance there. She can't get away from him. She's she looks slow. She's got big flowing clothes. She's running through this long grass. She's running up a hill, um, and the the absolutely glorious picture perfect LA sunset is behind them. This sort of golden thing, and it's echoing all these like you know, you know, uh, savannah animals that hunt in dawn and dusk, basically running up and capturing a piece of prey. And then he subdues her and then sort of nurtures her back to the house to control the situation again. But he sort of realizes then that he can't be the Neil that he wants to be impulsively and, 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 and reflexively. He has to like put his, oh, this is the guy that I have to be to make this fantasy be alive.
1: Yeah, totally. Because, yeah, when he walks in in the previous minute, he's still that gruff guy who was, you know, like you talked about in a previous episode, who was being a jerk to Jeremy Piven and everything. He's still kind of that guy. Yes. Or going in talking to Treo with everything. He's that guy. But then quickly. Even just you see it as he's running, it's it's totally different. And I, I like that you mentioned that shot because it's a little easy to get a bit distracted. And this happens often in Michael Van movies where you're just like, wow, that shot is gorgeous. <laughs> and you're like, wait a second. No, there's something really important happening here. But again, it's also the way the camera does it because the camera starts out. They run up and it's very close to them. But then it pulls further back and we're looking at the sunset and we're seeing them down there. And we have this kind of odd view. And it's I think it's one it's it's gorgeous but also it gives you these kind of conflicting feelings cuz there's a way to shoot that exact same thing mm. like like a B-grade horror movie where basically he's chasing after it's like you know like a TV movie where you this woman marries someone and finds out he's really a criminal or something and it's done in this kind of horrifying way but this isn't that way at all it's kind of the music it's kind of You know, it has that nighttime in L.A. It's very beautiful. So while it's almost like you have to dig, this isn't the first time you go through, you're like, oh, yeah, this is good. And when you watch it a few more times, again, like we've talked about, he's softening, but he is still, you know, he still subdues her, brings her inside. And when she's sitting there in the chair at the very end of the minute, she looks like she went through some serious trauma. Like this was a traumatic moment for her and she hasn't totally recovered and I think that's what you said. He kind of realizes that eventually and pulls back. But, you know, he comes in and does not anticipate that he's putting her through that trauma. But that's, that's Neil. That's what he's doing, right? I
0: don't know if he anticipates it, Dan. I agree with you. I don't know if he anticipates it as much as he doesn't care. Like, that's where you kind of get to the... Almost to the vein of his... Like, what, he's, what he actually is, which is like a true sociopath. In that moment... She just needs to be compliant for him. And when he realizes that he hurts her and then he kind of almost sees in her fear a reflection of himself that isn't living this fantasy life that he's been enjoying seeing in her eyes in other parts of the movie, he then has to re- withdraw and, and, and take a different tact on it. And I think it remi- it's reminiscent... You, know, you you did the call-out about the horror movie thing. It reminds me of like classic horror, though like classical, I don't know, kind of creature from the Black Lagoon is an example because it's slowed. It's a scene that unfolds without that same relentless pace or fearful pace, you know? It's like a the fact that it's going up a hill and then him embracing her, it doesn't... And the thrashing doesn't feel crazy because obviously she's not as strong as him. So the thrashing's not... Like, she's just consumed. He grabs her and he's like a boa constrictor. He just grabs her and she can't move. And so there's, like, the fact that it unfolds in this, like, languid way, you could sort of, if you turn this into a black and white film and added an intertitle, like, it would be a 1930s horror movie of, like, a guy that pursues a woman up a hill and grabs her and then restrains her and takes her back to the house. Um, but, yeah, it's a, that's, that's the feeling that I get when I keep watching it. And I think this beautiful, ethereal sort of uh, electronic... Um, tinkering of like notes that is happening in your ear as this glorious sunset happens it's like you know it's it's that 30s horror and then there's also that beautiful sunset coming to you know to put neil in the cold light of day
1: yeah that's a great example because you think about yeah more recent thrillers and such it'd be more you know people are in their house and glasses breaking and things you know ferocious screaming yeah like Yeah, this is not that at all. One, because of the way it's shot. Like you said, it's it's gorgeously shot. And I never get a sense really that she's going to die or is in any real like, you know, it's more as you think back to what's really happening when you watch it. And you're like, okay, there's a real danger there. Like you brought up. It's like (laughs) he isn't like he's not going to just be like. She runs out and he's like, okay, I guess this relationship over. No, he's got to be in control. He's got to be in control of everything. That wouldn't be that would be as exciting for it's, the movie it's, either. It's,
0: if it's, it, it's, it is, but you're right. It's like that thing that happens in reflection. You have this weird, like, different appreciation for it that when Neil actually grabs her, you're still kind of on his side. You're like, oh no, don't run away. We don't want Neil to have to kill this person. Like, he doesn't want to hurt you. We want Neil to live his fantasy, please. It's this great, it's a great wrinkle in, in in our own kind of twisted morality as we're following this movie that we're just okay with him snatching this woman back and taking her under duress back to her house.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so much a testament to Robert De Niro's performance and just the way that, you know, Michael Mann presents him because... Mm. In a way, like the more I think about it, and I think your podcast has done a good job to make me think about. It, the more I think about, like you mentioned, he's a sociopath. But I mean, I have plenty of times I've watched this movie, especially. I mean, I'm looking ahead, but when he makes a big decision near the end and it causes him, you know, causes his ending I think wow you know that's really heartbreaking what he did that feels so bad and in a sense if I if it was a normal character I'd be like he just they shot a bunch of policemen and killed people and stole money (laughs) but like you're so on board with this guy that you know and a plus two you have people like Van Zandt and Wayne Crow and everyone who are worse so you're like oh I'm, I'm on board with him but in a way it's like the more you think about it you're like yeah like you said he cares about her as this like idea or something like even the way he describes to Vincent I've got a woman it's like this idea he's got he's got something to he's, live for he's got, there's yeah. so,
0: something I've got a woman
1: and uh, Vincent's you know in,
0: in their way they don't get to sort of directly contend with it like in the previous scene and then what has caused this conflict around the hill but Vincent's like what do you tell her I tell her I'm a salesman and he's like that's pretty vacant no it's like it is what it is like that this is the guy that we're dealing with it is what it is if not we yeah. to go do something else pal like this is the game her her concerns or vacant or my emotional connection with her is secondary to my profession is what he's saying in that scene and we're seeing it play out here and him having to like completely pivot when it doesn't work
1: so so what do you think about this, though? Because his whole idea that he's had of, you know, you got to be able to drop everything when the heat's around the corner, 30 seconds flat. Yes. In theory, he should just leave. He shouldn't even involve her. But do you think, I mean, is in a way, is he basically, if she said, I won't leave, I'm staying in L.A., is she a loose end he has to remove? Or is he going to let her do that? Or is it either, even though he says later, I'll go, you know, you can come with me or whatever, but given his thought, he shouldn't even come back. He should completely leave without her. But then, would she be a loose end that would be a problem? Well, you know,
0: there's so many times in this movie, Dan, and I'll, and I'll just go back. I I think it was episode. It was the first time that the lovely Bill Getabiri joined me on this show, episode 92, and he said something that I'd been thinking about. For, he he articulated something that I've been thinking about watching this movie for many years. Is that De Niro's character Neil McCauley says and educates chris and has a mantra and has a philosophy and has a moral code and has a work ethic that he just imposes on his people around him right so one of that is you know in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around a corner you've got to be able to drop everything and get the hell out of here this guy sat in front of the heat at a cafe and had a personal <laughs> conversation about a relationship, and he didn't leave do you know what I'm saying? Like the heat was around the corner. They know the heat's around the corner. They know the heat is there, and so I think it's this weird. It's it's Neil's hubris is that we are enamored. I feel like as an audience member, we as people who love this movie are enamored with his philosophy, and we're enamored with his code and the the artfulness of Michael Mann's script is that in every you know and his aspiration, and I think it you know it, 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 the film lives this aspiration. Was that every single time that De Niro or Hannah is on, De Niro or Pacino, so Vincent, Hannah, and, and Neil McCauley, ha, uh, McCauley and Hannah rather, are on screen, we're with whoever's on screen. We want De Niro to get away, but we want Vincent to get him. It's this great balance. Like, we. it's it's a contradiction for us as the audience, but we're loving it. So for me, I, I don't know if Neil would want to kill Edie, and I don't know if Neil really knows what he wants with Eddie or he's just made up his mind that he thinks that he needs to live this fantasy. That's why I think there's a lot of people have trouble with this relationship and and rightly so like a conflicted emotions is because I don't know whether Neil feels like he's in love or needs the love or he is in love because you can be totally in love with someone and have that totally clash with what your professional aspirations are and realize that they're incongruous too late. You know, people do that in their everyday lives when the stakes are a lot lower than Bank robberies and and um at car heist. but yeah, I don't I don't know if he I think he would leave her as a loose end, but in this moment after this confrontation, if she goes, she knows too much. She knows too much, but I don't think I don't think he's reached that point. I think he feels like she can be controlled. She can, she's in his clutches. She's compliant. She'll come. And fortunately, I think for the sake of us loving. Neil McCauley and having a relationship with him, I don't think man would ever want us to flex those muscles to think, Oh God, would he actually kill her? Cause I think that that, you know, immediately it would take us offside. We already feel bad enough for Edie as it is.
1: Right. For sure. And I hadn't even really considered it too strongly until fairly recently because, but do you think about it? I mean, when he, like one of the times early on when he's out to dinner with all of the crew and they're out with their wives and everyone, and he kind of gets this look on his face, like, yeah, I'm missing something. So he calls up Edie, and he, it was after the first night. He comes back over, and it's like that idea of her as well. Everyone else, Chris has this, or you know, everyone else has this. I should have this. Yes, agree. And I think he Compl- does love her in a way, but as much he loves the idea, because it's not like he, you know, she has. She's trying to gr- become a graphic designer and do all these things, and works at a bookstore. And he, I don't think he ever stops to think. If she goes with me, what is her life? He's thinking, "Well, I'm going to go, and I'm going to, you know, go with her, and she's going to be amazing." But it's all—it's all under his control. It's all his idea. (laughs) There's not—it's not not both of them. Yeah, idea is not an interesting contrast.
0: Idea is not reality, right? That's so great. And like, just let's call back. This is another thing I like to talk about, Dan. I think it's great to recontextualize every now and then. And I think that heat is this wonderful, like, uh, like concertina of mirroring things that happen throughout mirrored lines great contrasting choices great conversations um and i think also what happens is everyone remembers that wonderful you know it's a goddamn convention you know pacino seeing them at the dinner and they remember neil looking across the table and looking at the families looking at michael and elaine looking at treo and anna and looking at Um, Chris and Charlene and sort of having a little pang of regret and that he's missing something, he's missing life. And then you only have to cast your mind back. What's the immediate scene we see before that? We see Neil confront Charlene about having an affair. Clean up, go home. Like that scene almost to a T is before that. So what's Neil really looking at? Neil in that convention scene, in my mind, is looking at a fantasy. He's looking at an orchestration. He's looking at control. He's gotten Chris and Charlene. He's holding them together. And they're there playing happy family. That's a fantasy.
1: It's for Neil. Totally. Yeah, and I think a lot, when I thought about this minute that we have, I think a lot about that scene with Charlene and just how he treats it. Because in one sense, again, thinking of it as we're on Neil's side, we go, of course. He's trying to help them as a relationship. He's trying to help his friend Chris, but the way he does it—I mean, he doesn't—you <laughs> know—he doesn't threaten her or anything. But the way he does it, there's she doesn't real. It's kind of like how he is with Edie later. It's like he's like, "You're going to give him one more chance. If you don't, he gives you her an offer give she him can't the refuse. Chance. You will give him the chance. <laughs> yeah, you know, pack your stuff, go home. Pack your stuff, go home. He says it over and over. It's like the same thing with control. It's in a sense. He's trying to control, like you said. He keeps them together. And I didn't even think about the fact, yeah, then afterwards you see them smiling and everything's okay. But it's not like everything's okay at all. <laughs> right. They'll probably they probably went home and had an argument or something. I mean, I don't we didn't see that, so I don't want to make assumptions. But the idea is that Neil I think and it's you've okay. Talked, I think it's okay to make before. assumptions, I didn't the control. Yeah,
0: I think, no, I think it's good. I think that's great. Like, this is what a, why Heat's a great text is because once you have the characters established and the relationships established, when we don't see them off screen, there is plenty for us to assume and to intuit into the different characters and dynamics. So when things don't make sense, it's great to still leave that question mark. I think that's the beauty and the ambivalence of the overall script is like and and the architecture of all the characters it's like oh Charlene and Chris probably went home and had a fight and go or had that conversation that conciliatory conversation that couples sometimes have when they have a fight and they go alright we we've just got to go to dinner and you know we can deal with this later you know put on a happy face alright family dinner and then they go out and here they have to put on a happy face and like you said Neil is Neil's the architect of that control and right now like this final frame that leads into the 200 and um, uh, you know, um, 2 hours and 10 minutes, um, 130th minute of this movie is, you know, it's a stark contrast from the romance of a sea of lights and it's a stark contrast from like this Savannah, you know, Savannah suffocation, strangulation, you know, gazelle being taken down by a lion scene and it's just Neil and Edie looking bedraggled. I think you, you put it there. She just looks like she's been hit by a bus. And she, you know, Amy Brenneman's beautiful hair is probably teased up to emphasize that. But yeah, she just looks so out of it in this moment.
1: Yeah, and it makes me think of you know the famous story where Amy Brenneman was like, "I don't, I don't like this movie. It's too <laughs> bloody. It's, it's a whole thing." Where and Michael Mann's like, "Well, you're perfect for that," but really she is because this movie needs that. I mean, in one sense, you look at the movie and say, "Well, Edie, you know, she's not." You know, she doesn't have as many big scenes as Charlene and she's, you know, she's kind of off in the side. And, you know, obviously man generally focuses on the male characters. But Edie's really important to this movie because deeply it. She reminds us she puts a mirror on Neil and basically we look at Neil and go, oh, yeah, we still admire how professional he is and his mantra and he's pretty cool. But we look at him and we go, yeah, that's it. Her that look in her face—it's actually in the previous minute, but right when she runs out the door, that look in her face is like pure horror, and also it's how most regular people would look. And so we need that regular person, but yeah, she's getting away a Neil's plans though <laughs> a little bit. But it's—we need it. We, we and
0: can you imagine like just thinking because you know Michael Mann is a guy who absolutely you know jam packs, you know extra detail like ancillary detail into the preparation of the performers that he's dealing with and into some scenes and you know you know you're richly sort of engaged in a particular scene and in this scene, like you know 1995 you know you're you're an American 95 is like the birth of 24-hour news cycle you know that's the you know to coincide with the OJ Simpson case and also the OJ Simpson chase It's like it triggered this 24-hour, like, live news cycle. So, can you imagine the magnitude of that happening? And then sitting there, essentially, she sat there since, let's say, I don't know, she finished work. So, from 5 p.m. to almost, like, 3 or 4 a.m. as the sun is rising, she's sat there and watched 24-hour news cycle about the cops hunting down these crooks and... You know, they're still on the run and there's another death in connection with this. Can you imagine just the news cycle that she's had to sit there and watch with the guy that she's just been sleeping with and what that would be doing to your head while you were sitting there by yourself? She was probably thinking the whole time, he's going to come here and kill me.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And instead he comes in and is the most nonchalant, like, I mean, all he mentions, he doesn't say, all he mentions is that his friend died. Like, he's not even, he's not even, she's a prop. I mean, she's basically barely there. <laughs> I mean, she, you That's know, he's hard. not. It's harsh, but probably a fair, fair, um, fair, I mean, I don't mean that in terms of the movie or Michael Mann. I just mean for Neil. Mm. Because he's coming in as basically, he's thinking about his friend dying. He's thinking about being betrayed because now he knows that it was Wayne Grove. And is not thinking, and plus, being a sociopath, does not completely understand how most people might react to how he, to what he's doing. You know, he just doesn't see it. It's just that's just oh, that's
0: just crazy, crazy. <laughs> I I brought you down here. I just... It's 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 like I think that 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 is so important. Like her her relegation to prop level here is where you that's the window to Neil. You need to see him be mean to her to bring everything, as you said. I think back to earth, and it's um it's yeah, it's just um, it's just craziness. It's just craziness that that's what it has come to, right? For this for this guy and for this woman, and especially this like poor girl who's just packing books in a store is now entangled in this. Um, and yeah, it's, there's a callousness that's on that's on display here. But it's from the minute that he walks in the door to when he starts this comforting thing, like it's really only 120 seconds, right? Less. Yeah. And how loaded is this interaction and how important is it for the way that we have a... We continue to have a conflicted relationship for Neil for the rest of the movie. Like, we know this is a guy who will, t- will t- compromise himself and make bad decisions. And I think as they those decisions have greater magnitude, you know, following, you know, hunting down Wayne Grow incorrectly, still trying to control Chris from beyond, not just taking the outs that Nate is orchestrating and, and lining up for him to get out. There's just all these things that are leading... To the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, that it just starts to, you know, it starts to snowball.
1: Yeah, and there's it's, and I'm conflicted. It's conflicted as viewers were conflicted because I think of it after the heist. I look at it. A, a strong part of me is like, yes, I want to see him get Van Zant. I want to see him take out Wayne Grove. I want to see him get out. You totally like when he goes and gets Wayne Grove, You're like, yes. yes. But in the sense, you're like, no, don't. But it's so, but then you you think of that though. That's his perspective. That's our perspective. Where does Edie fit in all that? She's like, you know, she wants, he still has this idea of we're going to go and we're going to fly away and we're going to have this idyllic life. And, but that's, that's not front and center. He's got all these other things going on. He's just, that's the thing after these, all these other things. And we're (laughs) conflicted because what does that mean for her? Like, I know that she may be torn. She'll be tormented by this for a while, but if she had gone with him, I don't know. That's a, like, you mentioned all the other layers of the text. I think about that a lot. Like what is the alternate universe where whatever she's okay with it or with something? Else? I mean, we're getting way beyond this minute, but I just try to, you know, I don't want to, cause I know you're going to have a great conversation when we get to the point when he makes that decision. But I just think about her and all the different ways this could have gone. And like you said, if he was gruff to her the first time when they were in the diner and she tried to talk to him, and in a weird way, I mean, I like the relationship in some ways, but it's like she should have just stepped away when he, when he rebuffed her at the beginning. It's so weird to think about backwards. I,
0: and, and I think you're right. That's one thing that we haven't addressed in this minute, which I think is perfect. So thank you so much for reminding me, is Edie has kind of seen Neil be up and down, right? So even in a small way, in a microcosm, of like guy who's completely hostile to someone wanting to approach him, and so she's had this weird relationship. So in this moment, like she's gone from extreme tenderness and kindness and sweetness and romance, like fantasy stuff, all the fantasy, you know, um, fantasy land, and then coming into, you know, more harsh reality of him, a salesman, he's a bit emotionally distant, he's this, he's that. And so when the revelations pile on, it probably helps her understand all of that weird emotion, the hostility, why he'd be like, why do you want to know why I'm reading a book on medals? Like all that stuff's probably going through her head. Like she's probably hearing all those things, Again and again and again and going, oh my God, like, this is why this guy was so cagey. This is what's happening. And so then it kind of, and again, this is the the artfulness of the script. It kind of sets up with Edie as like, you know, underneath this rough exterior and this bad shit, if you can get past it, there is a guy that I like. Which is when we come to that minute, there's that, there's a wonderful exchange where he's sort of bargaining with her to, to go with him. Because right now, he's just sort of calming the situation down so she doesn't run away and contact the police and reveal where he is. He's utilizing her space as a, as a sort of, as a hideout because no one knows where, no one knows about him and Edie's relationship. No one knows where he could be. So, from a like real practical perspective, he's using her. He's not going back to his home in Malibu because that, you know, the cops might know where he lives. And so, I think that that's a great point is like, she still has this inclination in this romance that underneath this gruff and exterior that this, this guy genuinely loves her and they want to get away together.
1: Yeah. And I think part of him does think that, I mean, it's not, like he has not done this just purely out of yeah. I mean, some of it's selfish, but I think part of him really, I mean, they have a, you see it, they have good scenes together. They have good chemistry. There's something there. It's just basically, yeah. And it's like you mentioned, She had to suspect there was something weird. She it's unlikely she has met any of his friends. He talks about he sells medals, but there's probably like some voice in the back of their head being like something's a little off about this guy, but maybe it's just he talks about his parents and maybe it's just he had a rough childhood, whatever. But so when it comes together, like you said, this is not a case where everything else was completely normal. (laughs) She met all his friends. They go out to bars. They go to baseball games, whatever. This is not that. This no. is something else. So I think that also makes it a lot clearer for sure.
0: What do you think about her sitting here in the cold light of day, looking out with the smog of LA behind them? It's not nearly as romantic a vision that we've seen. It, that's, a, that's a stark contrast for me. What do you think? What do you feel like with that, Dan? Cause I, one thing I notice here is like, this is one of the very rare moments that we're in like the blinding glare of LA morning and day. There's been lots of other very artfully constructed ways that we see LA and you know beautiful evenings and the gorgeous cool nights and, and and you know you know cold evenings for heists or you know and and in the cold harsh light of day with um in the in the morning heist I guess at the beginning of the film but this is like the next time that you really see the cold light of day and the glare and 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 this sort of lack of romance is here just sort of punctuating this scene.
1: I think a lot of it is—it's one of the rare scenes that is not a not not a pretty scene. It's not gorgeous. We talked about running up the hill and how pretty that was and beautiful, and even later when he gives his speech to her about how he does—you know—that kind of gets her that softens her more. That's in a beautiful scene too. Oh, so this glorious. is one where that is, is gorgeous. Yeah.
0: That is a gorgeous scene. That is a gorgeous scene.
1: Yeah, that's like beautiful nighttime LA. This is one of the rare scenes. Where it's kind of ugly, and I think it accentuates how her face is kind of pale, and she's got this look of just not terror, not being afraid, just nothing. Like when she's, you know, she says, Arter, "Will you let me leave?" Utter you know, disdain. Nothing.
0: She's just. It's it's so, she's so good. Amy Brenneman is phenomenal in this film. Absolutely phenomenal and essential. And just like even though she's meant, she's had to play the night na- the naive person that's hoping for the best in this situation that's being manipulated right now she's just she's reflecting she's her face is reading everything you need to know about his ugliness like his selfishness his callousness right now it's like it's a harsher judge than almost any other minute of the film
1: exactly like i said it's a mirror and basically she'll soften as we go but that look it's just even you see it later in the car it's just that look of like I, she does like her emotions just are sucked out of her. It's like, I almost like a vampire or something. I mean, it's a bit of a stretch, but it's just somehow this knowledge and filling in the missing piece with him. I mean, again, like we said, she's only learned all this in the last like 12 hours, 15 (laughs) hours. And it's like, it happens in the movie in a span of a minute, like we talked about, but it's very short. And it's, so it's one of those things where, I mean, it might even be like less by the time he's arrived, Might be six hours. And so it's not even hit her. It's basically like we said, it's like she was in a car accident or like (laughs) she's just in shock. And I don't know. That scene, I think, spells out if that scene looked gorgeous or somehow they were up on some hill or they went somewhere in L.A., it would undercut the scene. We need to see something very basic. It shows what his life right now really is, even like you saw, like you've mentioned how Chris looks so beat up after a shot we need to see that because life is rough for them right now it's ugly Mm. it's you know for treo it's ugly (laughs) things are not so pretty and early on even with you know how they did their heist and the way the heists were and some of the things they've done in the past with their suits and the way the movie starts the life looks pretty glamorous not much seems glamorous right now nothing
0: seems glamorous right now i think (laughs) that's the perfect way to summarize this minute nothing seems glamorous right now dan Heaton. Mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show and reaching out. This has been awesome.
1: Oh, thank you. It's It's been a blast to talk with you. I think I, I just want to go watch Heat and maybe Black Hat a few more times.
0: <laughs> You're allowed. You're allowed to do both, and I strongly encourage it. Guys, Um, uh, Dan, where is the best place for people to find you? Are you on the Twitters, um, around the place, or is it just um, ptsnob.com is the best place to find you?
1: Oh, you can. I'm on Twitter at the Dan Heaton, and also you can go to ptsnob.com. And I did a bunch of long articles about Michael Mann movies, and there's a button It's like called "Investigating." Investigating
0: Michael, Man. Michael Mann. I'll make sure that that's yeah. in the description um, when we go, and I'll make sure at the Dan Heaton is in there as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the show, and thank you for reaching out. Really appreciate it. Um, and uh, and I, I just want to say thank you so much for this great chat, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank Garth Franklin for our web design, Mister. Uh, Paul Davies for our amazing theme and as always thank you to all the listeners and subscribers and the people who have taken the time to rate and review the show um, I couldn't thank you enough um, and, and if you um, want to stay in touch mail at oneheatminute.com or just hit me up on Twitter at Blakey's Batman um, there we are now at the 129th minute so there aren't very very many minutes left to go of this show and it's been a huge journey and uh, we're winding up and we're getting a whole stack of amazing guests just like Dan that are going to be on the show um, to talk to you guys through um, you know, this, this movie as is it, is it hits its crescendo. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you soon, uh, but we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. And uh, in the cold, hard light of day, uh, Neil McCauley's not a very nice guy right now,
1: so uh, let's see what happens in the next minute.